You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. considering messages over a period of months on the theme of after death. What? What comes beyond this life? What can the Bible tell us is known for both the believer and the non-believer? We've already looked at some things the believer can know, and we're going to return to that subject in the winter season to see the glories of heaven over a number of weeks. But we're in the hard part of this, what some would call the other side of good news, If there's good news, there has to be bad news. We're looking at the fate of the unbeliever today. I'm going to read from a most familiar chapter of the Bible, John 3, and I'll actually be concentrating on the part that comes right after the part of this that you know best. Listen as I read John 3, 1 through 21. This is God's Word. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council, and he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could do the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water, that is, naturally, and of the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. And so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. Do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, But still people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. 
Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. And may God bless our understanding of his word today. Crime and Punishment is one of those novels that you've probably never gotten around to reading unless an English teacher has enforced that on you. It's a great novel. I commend it to you. It's Fyodor Dostoevsky's classic that features a main Russian character named Raskalnikov. At the beginning of the book, Raskalnikov is a poor Russian student. He has hardly two rubles to put together. He doesn't even have food to eat. He wonders how he will exist. And a circumstance arises in which he encounters an old pawnbroker, a man who is wealthy. And when he goes to pawn something, he realizes here's a wealthy man and also a man who appears to be a reject of society and have no family and not be loved by anyone. And Raskalnikov kills him. He tells himself, of course, killing him to get his money, that no one will miss this man. No one will search for his killer. He'll get away with it. (coughs) There'll be no ultimate consequences coming after him. And indeed, that seems to be the case for a long time. Raskalnikov launches on a life that he imagines will be prosperous with the beginning, with the money he had from the crime. And his life does seem to go quite well. But the novelist Dostoevsky, who really showed many Christian themes and was highly moralistic in his writing, shows that there's an outworking of judgment for this supposedly hidden act. And as you can guess from the title, punishment slowly begins to emerge as being relentlessly on the trail of the criminal. Even though his life seemed untroubled outwardly, the young man, you understand, stood condemned from the very beginning because of the crime that he had committed. Now today we continue with the theme of after death what by further exploring the unpleasant subject but a necessary subject of divine judgment for unbelief. In the third chapter of John, a highly intelligent man came to Jesus seeking an audience. And Nicodemus, as he came, brought a great misconception that needed straightening out. It was the misconception of human religion that assumed it knew how to get to God. Jesus, of course, controlled the conversation and took it in a direction Nicodemus never expected and was absolutely bewildered to hear. He found out that for all his great education and his religious zeal and his social prestige, there was an awful lot he didn't know and a lot that needed straightening out in his understanding. And I would tell you that there's also a huge misconception held by millions of non-Christians and sometimes even badly informed Christians, and it's the misconception that says heaven is humanity's natural 
destination. You can hear one evidence of this when you go around to funerals today, and no matter whose funeral it is, no matter what the faith or lack of faith or anything else, you'll hear the relatives and the friends consoling one another with a phrase that I would guess is said at just about every funeral sometime, oh, he's in a better place. Now, I'm just enough of an imp, I guess, inside that there are times when I would wish I don't do it, but there are times when I would wish I could say, are you sure of that? Perhaps he's in a place that is horrible beyond your nightmares. Are you sure he's in a better place just because he died? But the common notion, of course, says, oh, men and women in general are all bound for heaven, aren't they? Well, except a minority, a a certain small group of real rotten apples, the worst evil ones, the cruel ones, whom God must consign to hell, but the rest of us, the majority of us, everybody I know, right, will be in a better place. Well, here's the problem. The Bible teaches that no one stands upon neutral ground as far as an eternal destination is concerned. And it also teaches that not everyone stands upon heavenly ground bound in that direction. In fact, it teaches by default, everyone has chosen a destination and will proceed there unless that destination is disrupted somehow by God and His Word. Isaiah 53, 6 predicts it, saying, All we like sheep have gone astray, turning every one. Does it say we've turned to God's way? We've turned to our own way. Another passage, similarly, Romans 3.10, declares about all of humanity. There is no one righteous, no one who seeks after God. Now, when we deal with the familiar territory of John 3, I know that you would wish for me, and I've done it in the past, that I would embellish the wonderful verse of John 3.16, and I'm going to glance off it very quickly today because I really want you to see what comes right after John 3.16, especially John 3.18. And there are only two main points I'm going to try to draw. I hope you'll see them being built from this text. The one says, eternal salvation comes to us by an unnatural birth of faith in Christ. The other one says, eternal condemnation comes by simply remaining in your natural unbelief. The first point I intend covers a large section here. I can't speak on this whole passage and not say something about 3, 1 through 16. And and indeed, it's essential to say something about that if you understand what comes after it. So covering all 16 of those verses, and certainly not adequately for the details, we see that eternal salvation comes by an unnatural birth of faith in Christ. Nicodemus came as a proud intellectual. He was a somebody. Jesus was a nobody. And you see that it was the nobody that took over the conversation and taught the somebody. 
Nicodemus comes representing human-based religion, groping around in the darkness, waiting in its ignorance for God to shine his true light. Now, in these first 16 verses, I'm just going to quickly, like a stone skipping off water, mention three sub-concepts that are under this first point. One of them is, is the concept of new birth which is portrayed here clearly as a miracle work of God. Jesus says this great word that's painted more clearly here, although it's mentioned other places. It's mentioned more clearly here than anywhere else in the Scripture. Unless you are born from above or born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not going to dwell on it, but just mention to you the interesting little textual point in John 3, 3, you can read this either born again or born from above. And guess what? Interestingly, uh, you don't have to have a long preacher's explanation as to why one of those is better than the other because both meanings are there. The Greek can properly be understood to say born again as in a second time and born from above, that is not from human obstetrics or human sexuality, but born by the power of God. 1 Peter one twenty three presents the same idea, saying we must be born again not by corruptible seed, but incorruptible by the Word of God, which abides forever. It tells us there that the power which gives us rebirth is the Word of God, the spoken truth of God in the gospel in particular. God's life-changing Word is like sperm that conceives faith in Christ within our souls. New birth, a miracle work of God by His power. You know, I find people are endlessly fascinated with new birth, especially as represented in little babies, right? I've learned over the years that you can't carry a little baby into a crowded room without nearly every woman present wanting to get her hands on the baby. The men don't actually line up to do this, but the women do. Oh, could I hold the baby? I don't do that because even my own grandchildren scream when I pick them up or spit on me or, or do something nasty when I'm holding them. But the miracle of new birth, just to, I, just, I just love to hold the little hand, the fantastic little hand, or feel the softness of the cheek or the ear. And we just marvel. Look at this new creation of God. Well, folks, don't ever become so jaded or blasé about Christian life, about being in Christ as a believer, that you would forget, even if you can't remember it as a specific event in your life, God worked a miraculous spiritual rebirth in order for you to belong to Christ. You didn't become a Christian by use of your powers of reason. You didn't become one by a long resume of of holy deeds or righteous acts. You became a Christian, according to a passage like 2 Corinthians 5.17, by God working through His Spirit to make you a whole new creation. New birth is an important concept here. Second concept, God's love. God so loved The world, just about everybody in this room could fill in the rest. Verse 16 is called by Luther and others the Bible in miniature. 
And particularly, it seems to be spoken here because Israelites often thought God loved only Jews, only fellow Israelites. And they needed to realize, and Jesus needed to shake them loose to understand that God loves all kinds of people, all nations of people. God loves Nigerians and Arabs and Brazilians and Swedes as well as Israelites. That's what's meant when it says the world. It's not talking about people numerically as much as it's talking about people in their vast variety. And it's also telling us that that he even has a certain kind of love even for the unbeliever. He pities the unbeliever. God takes no joy in the perishing of an unbeliever. The Scripture says he would that, that everyone would come, but he knows that everyone will not. God so loved all kinds of people that he did something about it. He gave his unique, his one and only, his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him would not perish. We're going to elaborate that word in days to come. But have everlasting life. Ephesians 2.5 echoes this, telling Christian believers, because of the great love he had for us even when we were dead in our sins, God made us alive. He gave us new birth together with Christ. God's amazing love didn't sit ineffectually on the the sidelines of of planet earth and and sort of wring his hands and say, oh, oh, I so wish that somebody would pay attention to what I've done, that somebody would notice my son and believe in him. The scripture doesn't paint that at all. God, by the mystery of his working, activated faith in Christ and did so for millions. And in fact, anyone who comes to faith and then has a biblical understanding of how that happened looks back and says, I didn't do that by myself. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. How did I believe? Well, it must have been God. And Some want to insist on the power of the words, whosoever believes in this verse. They are indeed important words. They draw the line of differentiation between the saved and the lost. But yet, a believer says, how did I join those whosoevers that believe? Well, I did it because God gave me a new birth. God gave me faith to believe. I couldn't even do that if he hadn't given his gift. And this then, new birth, God's love leads to a third concept here very quickly. Christ crucified as faith's object. Jesus was born to die on the cross. You see this particularly in verses 14 and 15. It tells of Moses lifting up a bronze serpent on a pole. And if you know your Sunday school lessons or your Old Testament at all, probably that Sunday school lesson a long, long time ago contained the teacher putting a pole with a snake up on it. Maybe you, if you're really knowledgeable, you understand that that actually was the origin of the caduceus, the symbol of the medical profession today. Because Israelites were told that if they would look at this bronze snake, they would survive the, the serpent bites that had bitten them because of their complaining and their lack of faith against God. In other words, God was calling for an act of faith to respond to a command of his. It wasn't the bronze serpent all by itself that mattered all that much, but the fact that they would do what God asked them to do. Look to the serpent and you'll survive. You'll be healed. Well, verse 14 says Jesus would be lifted up 
before humanity exactly like that, and those who look to Him in trusting faith would receive eternal life. Notice, it's very important that God's gift of a new birth is the first thing discussed in John 3 before the act of looking in faith. That's the proper order. That's the biblical order. God gives new birth, and then we have faith. There are those who say, oh, no, it happens the other way around. I have faith, and then God gives me a new birth. That's backwards. It's not the biblical order. Faith itself, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, is the gift of God. And so you notice here that faith required to trust in Christ as Lord, many have said, is no different than a drowning man. You know, and a, a ship is passing close to him, and here's this man thrashing, and he's about to go under for the last time, and someone throws out a lifeline with a life preserver, and the drowning man, with his last grasp, gets a hold of it and holds on and is pulled into the ship. Do you applaud the drowning man and say, oh, isn't that great? He saved himself. Of course not. The drowning man's grasp. If any credit is to be given, it's not to that grasp. It's to those who took the initiative and the concern and the compassion to throw the lifeline that the man would be rescued. Now, this is a, you know, you've never had such a racing run through 16 verses of Scripture as this. But I've not probed a myriad of details in this chapter, but I just want you to see in a wide-angle lens the first 16 verses here. John 3, 1 through 16 teaching that salvation comes by an unnatural, not humanly natural, birth of faith in Christ. It's a work of God that interrupts a man or woman in their course and gives the faith to look to Christ crucified and change our course thereby. Now, for the thing that really brought me to this text. The second point focuses on verses 17 and 18. The part of John 3 that people don't enjoy hearing about very much. There we learn not about eternal salvation, but eternal condemnation that comes by simply remaining in your natural unbelief. Now, I can put it in a very simple illustration. If you use a computer, you understand this perfectly. In my office, on my desk, is a computer I use every workday that's actually connected to several printers. One of them is, is two feet away, right there on the credenza in the office, a little inkjet printer, very inexpensive. And for everyday things, for pages I just want for my own use, that's where the printing jobs go, right there. It's convenient, it's easy. But of course, if I want a, a really well-printed, high-quality job or a higher-speed job for a large document, I'm connected to a couple other printers, and they're in the outer office. I have to get up and go get the product, so I'm not going to be quite as inclined to do that unless there's a reason. So my printer, when I say, here's a page, here's a document, print it, says, oh, default action, right there. But I could give it a new instruction and say, copy her out in the hallways very fast. This is a large document. Do it out there. Copier in the main office, very good printer, high resolution, do it there. The point is I have a default printer. And print jobs travel there by a path, an electronic path, unless that path is interrupted. 
Everybody understands that kind of thing, I think, unless computers are just gobbledygook to you. The crucial issue is, do you understand the Bible's teaching on the default destination of all human souls unless they are interrupted by the means that the first 16 verses of John 3 has told us about, a rebirth of faith in Christ and a look of faith to him that saves and turns them in a whole new way. You see, John 3.17 tells us John did not, or God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Don't let anybody tell you that it's God who condemns the unbeliever. That, this is saying no. It's implying that, in other words, the world had already found a way to condemn itself. It's not God or Christ that condemns the world. It's the world that condemns the world. And then comes this hard word for many to accept, but you have to hear it. Whoever believes in Christ is not condemned. Hallelujah for that part. But then the rest. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. You see, here's, here's the issue. And it's very important and very prevalent uh, in nominal Christianity and certainly outside of Christianity. Here's the prevalent belief. People would say, well, we're all just kind of in a neutral position in this life, and, and we pile up credits one way or the other to get out of our neutral position and please God and go to heaven. And hopefully it doesn't take too many to please God that he's merciful, he's nice. And if you're not Adolf Hitler or you're not somebody really, really nasty, you'll get enough credits to move out of the neutral position. And people would ask, well, since I haven't committed myself either way in Christian faith, how could my non-decision harm me? The Bible never, ever sees unbelief as being in innocent neutrality. It sees that instead as the worst of all sins. No less than 98 times just in the Gospel of John One important word is used, believe, 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 98 times in John's gospel alone. That's the call. Because to remain in unbelief is not merely something unfortunate, it's fatal. A 19th century writer, J.C. Ryle, said, no sin is so great or so damning or so ruinous as unbelief. In one sense, he said, that is the unpardonable sin. Ryle said that because unbelief as your default destination points you to eternal condemnation. And we're going to learn to our horror if we don't already know anything about it in some coming weeks what that eternal condemnation looks like according to Scripture. Who determines that natural default destination? We do. We do. Oh, you say, no, it was Adam. I'll blame him. No, you do. Because you do all the same things Adam did. You're born the way Adam was born, and you do what Adam did. And if you would read the early chapters of Romans, you see the case against you piled up 
by the Word of God. So it comes to a place like Romans 3.10 that says there is nobody righteous, not even one. There is no one who seeks after God. They all have turned away. They're all headed down the default destination. The same thing is taught in Matthew 7.13 by Jesus when he said, broad is the road that leads to what? Destruction. And many go there, he said. Narrow is the road that leads to what? Life. And relatively few there are who find it. God did not institute the default destination on which every human being is traveling unless they are interrupted and taken off that road. We authored that road. We chose that road, even though God loved ruined people bound on that road so much that he sent his son not to condemn us. What does Luke's gospel say was the purpose? Jesus is the speaker, but what he says was the purpose in the son being sent was to seek and save those who are lost, to come and get them off that default road. God made Christ the lighthouse beam. He made him the way, the truth, and the life to get people off that road. Now, be sure you hear John 3.18 because it isn't saying just that unbelievers are going to be condemned someday at a great final judgment. I've talked about that final judgment a little bit in the last couple of weeks. This isn't just talking about what will happen in the future. What does it say? They are condemned already right now while they're alive on earth. The sin of the unbeliever rests on his own head. And he has nobody to take its crushing weight off of him. Now, some are saying, and I know this is going to be the attitude that's out there in the next few weeks. Preacher, what motivated you to talk about all this stern stuff, this condemnation, this hellfire and brimstone? This is a very negative message. I don't like it. It's not cheerful. Well, I must ask you if you consider a lighthouse on a rocky coastline to be something negative. You wouldn't if you were a ship's captain. In the days, at least, when they didn't have electronic devices that I think have replaced the lighthouses today, the lighthouse was everything to the ship's captain. And he didn't say, oh, how foolish of somebody to build a light there on that coast. He said, thank God I see the light, and I know where the rocks are, and I know what I have to steer clear of. And he didn't say, oh, what a negative thing that lighthouse is piercing the night. He said, thank God for it. Nothing is more suicidal to a human soul than to turn his back on God's remedy of salvation in Christ. But what does our text say as it wraps up the part that I read in further verses 19 and 20? Does it say, oh, God brought his light, and naturally, naturally, people said, wonderful, 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 the light of God. Oh, let me have it. (laughs) Scripture wants you to understand the perversity of unbelief and says, look what happens. The light of God comes, and people don't love it. They hate it. They despise it. They run away from it. Why? Because it exposes what they are, and it terrifies them. They prefer the dark because they don't want what they are to be shown to either themselves or anybody else, and they think maybe God won't even see it. 
Now, this text teaches us that anyone who makes shipwreck of his soul has full responsibility for it on his own head. Folks, the doctrine of election taught in the Scripture does not, will you hear me please, does not teach that God sends people to hell against their will. It teaches that eternal misery results from a lifetime of wrong choices and a default destination in which a person lives in continual unbelief and wants nothing else and accordingly, in the end, gets nothing else. Let me ask you a serious question. Do you know today that you love the Lord Jesus Christ? I didn't ask you how confused your life is or what you're doing wrong or sins that you're conscious of or guilt that's hanging over you or how bad you feel about yourself. I'm asking, do you know today that you love the light of God shining in the Lord Jesus Christ? And I know that hundreds of minds are saying, yes, 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 yes. I love him. I'm not worthy of him, but I love him. And if your heart rises with any joy to think of the wonder and the grandeur of the Son of God and who he was for you and what he did for you, then let me tell you, 100% assured verdict about you, you are not under God's condemnation. You are not. If you love Christ and call him Savior and Lord, Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now how much condemnation? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For he has set them free from the law of sin and death. If you have put full, sincere, honest trust in him, it doesn't matter whether your life has gotten all cleaned up yet or not, or or you think, well, I'm not really worthy of him. That's not the point. Do you love him? Do you trust him? If so, God must have done a work in your life. Because this text tells us unbelief does not love him. Unbelief does not embrace him. Unbelief does not trust him. Unbelief doesn't even want to get near him. And so if you love him, you can rejoice today in your position as a child of God. You're not condemned. You know, as I close here, I want to say something. It's really tragic to think that people in the sophisticated countries of Europe and Britain, and Canada, and the United States, places where the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ has been shining clearly, going out over airwaves and radio and missionaries and pastors and congregations in all kinds of ways, publications over centuries now, people in those countries who are still in the darkness are in the deepest darkness of all and in the greatest peril of all. Because if unbelief flees from the brilliant light of Christ and and says by its loving darkness instead, in effect it says, Christianity, please leave us alone. Stop preaching at us. We love our revelries. We love, we glory in our perverted sexual lusts. Why, we parade it down Main Street. We love our intellectual idols. Stop bothering us. We love darkness. And if that's what a person says, God will give them their wish and he'll give it to them for eternity. 
But remarkably, ladies and gentlemen, in scores of places in Asia and Africa and South America, lands where the midnight of false religion has loomed very dark for many centuries, the lights are going on, folks. Maybe you don't know what's really happening in the world. Revival is happening in many parts of the world. Churches are multiplying and growing faster than pastors can be found for them. Tens of thousands of people who've never seen true light are leaping towards Christ when they glimpse the gospel. And wonderful things happen when you see that. The gospel searchlight is shining today. You need to take your stand with Christ. Come into the light of Christ. And there will be no condemnation for you. May it be true in your life now and forever. Our Father, again, a hard word, but we hear this knowing it's the reality of the world. The amazing thing about unbelief is just incomprehensible to those of us who trust Christ. So we ask you, Draw us to prayer. Draw us to witness and the support of missions and the sending of the great light to so many places. Thank you for the marvel of new birth, for the marvel of the cross, and for your love that sponsored it all. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing just verses 1.